You're listening to The National, normally recorded by volunteers at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently being recorded from homes across Greater Glasgow. Please enjoy this week's articles. The National, Monday the 8th of June 2020. Coronavirus Latest, by Jack Aitchison. Labour leader Sakir Stammer said measures were needed at the border, but quarantine was a blunt instrument and a coronavirus testing process for new arrivals would be better. There had been inconsistency and slowness from the government over quarantine, he said. We've got the situation where weeks ago other countries put quarantine in and we didn't, he told BBC Radio. Now, as everyone's lifting it, we're putting it in. He added... I actually would much prefer to see some sort of testing regime at the airport or within days of coming in. The number of people booking summer holidays with Ryanair has doubled this weekend, with thousands of Brits planning to get time in the sun despite fears of coronavirus. Speaking about the quarantine for international arrivals on Good Morning Britain, Ryanair boss Michael O'Leary said, We're seeing thousands of British families booking their holidays in Portugal, in Spain and Italy. But he added there's almost a collapse of inward bookings and bringing those Italians, bringing those Europeans here to the UK on which Britain's tourism industry depends, particularly in the peak months of July and August. He continued, Millions of jobs are going to be lost in British tourism because British hotels, guest houses, British visitor attractions, London, the Globe, the London Eye, Madame Tussauds, they'll all be empty because the hundreds of thousands of Italians and Spanish and French people you get coming to Britain every July and August simply won't travel. Mr O'Leary went on to say, The British people, their families, typically who go on holidays abroad in July and August, well, they're travelling. Our bookings this weekend doubled, particularly in the month of July. I don't think anybody in the UK is bothered by, interested in, or worried at all by what even the Home Office admit is a useless quarantine. From today, people arriving in Scotland from abroad will have to quarantine for 14 days or face a £480 fine. Justice Secretary Hamza Youssef said that Scotland will be introducing measures broadly similar to those in other parts of the UK from June the 8th. All people arriving in Scotland will have to supply contact details, travel details and the address of where they will self-isolate. Border force officials will carry out spot checks at the border and can impose fines on travellers who refuse to comply. Anyone failing to provide details or breaching self-isolation could be fined up to £480. Scotland's Justice Secretary has said he's frustrated that so many people turned out for Black Lives Matter protests over the weekend, but the police could not go in heavy-handed to break up the demonstrations. Assistant Chief Constable Kenny MacDonald said he was disappointed at the number of people who turned out, but thanked those who were peaceful and adhered to social distancing. Ferry bosses have warned that if Scotland experiences a surge in staycations this summer as travel restrictions are gradually lifted, a normal summer service could not be delivered while maintaining two metres physical distancing protocols on board. UK-wide body the Caravan and Motorhome Club says that bookings are up by one-third year-on-year for July, August and September, with an expected boom in people enjoying Scotland's destinations as lockdown and travel restrictions are carefully eased over the coming months. Calmac Ferries Limited has warned MSPs that if it was required to put on a full summer timetable, 
the company would need up to 10 weeks' notice to recruit seasonal staff, while stressing that it could double the number of passengers it can carry if the two-metre social distancing rule is reduced to just one metre. No new coronavirus deaths were reported in Scotland yesterday for the first time since lockdown began, Scottish Government figures show. A total of 2,415 patients have died in Scotland after testing positive for COVID-19, figures published on Sunday show. This is no change on Saturday's figure and the first time the death total has remained the same since March 20th. The Scottish Government figures also show that 15,621 people have tested positive for COVID-19, an increase of 18 on Saturday, June 6th. Scotland's Health Secretary Jean Freeman said she would offer a note of caution about reading too much into Sunday's figures. She said, We know that fewer deaths tend to be registered at the weekend than on other days of the week. It's still very clear that further COVID-19 deaths will be reported in the days ahead. And, as always, I want to stress that the numbers I'm reading out are not simply statistics. Every one of those 2,415 people who've died was an individual whose loss is a source of grief and sorrow to very many. So I want to send my deepest condolences to everyone who's lost a loved one. Since the start of the pandemic, 677 adult care homes have now reported cases of coronavirus to the Care Inspectorate. That's 63% of adult care homes, with a total of 6,243 suspected cases on June the 6th, an increase of eight on the previous day. By Jack Hitchison. Recorded from The National, 8th of June 2020, upsurge in community volunteers mustn't be taken as a big society solution. Karen Goodwin. In the weeks leading up to lockdown, Sophia Latif, who runs Milan, a senior welfare organisation working within the South Asian community in Edinburgh, noticed that people gradually stopped coming to its daycare services. We started to see fear spread in our groups and numbers dwindled, she says. By the time Nicola Sturgeon announced that they needed to stop running its drop-in, where transport, lunch and activities were provided, the charity was already thinking about how else to meet needs. Because at a time when people were seeing support packages they considered essential cut from all directions, that need was growing by the hour. Latif moved fast, finding restaurant kitchens, getting staff trained and delivering lunch to their community, as well as offering support and advice on the phone. The charity started off delivering to 20 people, but as demand increased, numbers have soared, and it now has 150 older people on its books. The 10-strong team has put in extra hours and teamed up with other local charities, such as Unity, to reach right across the city, but Latif still worries that some are falling through the gaps. The need to support older people through this pandemic, over three quarters of deaths in Scotland have been of those over 75 and 52% in care homes, has been put back in the spotlight this week with calls emerging for a national care service. At First Minister's questions, Nicola Sturgeon said she was sympathetic to the idea, claiming that though it came with complexities, now was needed in, indeed the time to look at reforming Scotland's social care offer. Yet while attention has fallen in care homes, many are now also pointing to the chronic underinvestment in social and home care in the community. 
There is frustration too from some who have been calling for reform and investment for years that this is easy rhetoric. Donald McCaskill, Chief Executive of Scottish Care, put politicians' failure to act until now down to selective amnesia. He adds, It has cost of thousands of lives to give them back their hearing. We have been calling as an organisation <clears throat> for the reform of the social care system for years, and now everyone is jumping on a bandwagon of using an easy phrase. Social care is different from health, he argues, and it is not a one-size-fits-all system. As an organisation representing the third and independent care sector, he also has concerns about how nationalising care will impact on the choices older people should have the right to make about how they receive care. That includes care and support at home. Home care is the forgotten front line in this pandemic, he says. What we have seen around the country is local authorities have written to people to tell them they are removing their package and then three months later write back to say, because you haven't needed this, we are assuming you won't need it in the future. In fact, these people are being cared for by families who are on furlough, for example. They do need that support. He claims action, not rhetoric, is now needed. Paying carers who are still waiting to receive the living wage promised by the Scottish Government back in April, banning unacceptable 15-minute home visits, reinstating essential packages and putting proper investment in place. Tressa Burke, Chief Executive of Glasgow Disability Alliance, whose membership includes many older people, is emphatic about the need for investment. She says, Our social care system was hanging by a thread before COVID hit. Chronic underfunding leaves huge numbers of older and disabled people struggling with unmet needs and no choice in controlling their lives. This was already a national scandal and the devastating impact of COVID-19 on Scotland's care home residents, as well as the thousands of people in Glasgow alone whose vital care and support was cut under lockdown, reveal that our fragile, overstretched system is not fit for purpose. She is convinced by the idea of what she calls a national health and care service, but stresses choice and control must be embedded. Had there been proper investment in social care, she argues that many care home deaths could have been avoided. Social care would have been more aligned quality of care and standards, she says. Sufficient numbers of staff, proper PPE available from the outset alongside NHS peers would have been in place, for example. Change is also urgently needed to allow people the choice to stay at home for as long as they are able, she adds. Eligibility thresholds go up and as budgets shrink and bureaucracy spirals, making it impossible for older people with changing needs to access timely support to live well and safely at home. The upsurge in community volunteers must not be taken as a big society solution to fundamental rights and needs. Communities and families are vital for our health, well-being and social connections, but no one should be forced to rely on a neighbour to come and wipe their bum. Donald Williamson, Chief Executive of Shared Care Scotland, a charity representing organisations offering support and respite to carers, says it hears many of the same fears. Scottish figures from a Carers UK survey showed 80% of carers have taken on more responsibility since the start of lockdown, he says. We also know about 40% have had services either reduced or cut completely. It's of major concern the longer this goes on. He claims while the third sector in particular had done a fantastic job of rapid and creatively finding ways of putting services online, new issues are arising as they consider emerging from lockdown. It's a complex affair, he adds. People are nervous about starting up again and inadvertently being part of the problem in terms of a second spike. Families need to be reassured that it will be safe. 
Staff need to have reliable access to PPE in sufficient quantities and access to testing. There is a real eagerness to get back to business, but these are the concerns that services are raising to us. There are structural issues here too. Third sector and not-for-profit organisation provide so much of our health and social care services, he says, but they are saying there is a perfect storm coming in terms of increased demand and reduced income. The sustainability of the third sector is a huge concern. Transition funding must now be made available, he argues. Meanwhile, in Edinburgh, Sophia Latif has noticed a change creeping in. What we have found is that people are getting very disturbed now, she says. They are getting very emotional. They are telling us they just want us to come and see them. In response, the charity is applied to the Care Commission and its staff are now allowed to visit wearing PPE and they continue to act as a lifeline to many. It has arranged rescue flights for people stuck in Pakistan, India and Bangladesh and provided essential food and medicines when they are instructed to quarantine. We are supporting people with dementia, Latif says. Some of our clients are staying in a hostel. They are not even able to cook, so you can imagine how much they depend on us. These are the kind of things that nobody recognises. And now that the need has been exposed, those who support older people across Scotland claim we must not look away. You're listening to The National as published on Monday the 8th of June 2020. Comment. Why I grudgingly admire Ian Murray's desperate last throw of dice by George Caravan, columnist. Scottish Labour now have a new position on Scottish independence. Actually, it's the same as the old one. Opposition, resistance, obstruction. The result is a bitter and twisted unionism that prefers a Tory government at Westminster to any shade of progressive administration at home. A unionism that offers the chimera of big shoulders socialism if only we all stick together. A socialism that never seems to arrive. But what the heck, surely one more heave will see a red dawn over the decaying palace of Westminster. A socialist nirvana led by Ian Murray MP in his garish union Jack Blazer and Sir Keir Starmer, the ex-trot turned establishment barrister. Starmer famously was named after Keir Hardy, founder of the Scottish Labour Party, the Independent Labour Party and finally the present UK Labour Party. The Keir Hardy who was actually to the left politically of Jeremy Corbyn, never mind Starmer or Murray. A Keir Hardy who thought all landlords were parasites who should be abolished, SNP government please note. A Keir Hardy who wanted capitalism abolished. Hitherto the workers have been content to ask for small reforms, now they are realising that private property is the enemy they have to encounter. A Keir Hardy who opposed the First World War and marched against it. And of course a Keir Hardy who fought tenaciously all his life for Scottish Home Rule. By Home Rule, he meant the autonomous dominion status enjoyed by Canada, Australia and New Zealand, which made their own laws, set their own taxes and ran their own economies within the context of an imperial free trade area. Only defence and foreign affairs were reserved to the imperial parliament at Westminster, and even that constitutional fossil withered away as unenforceable, finally being abolished legally in the 1930s. This was the home rule for Ireland as well as Scotland that the Scottish Labour movement fought for until the Second World War. 
a home rule that assumed fiscal, economic and judicial autonomy from the UK Parliament precisely because the Labour movement, especially the old ILP, wanted space to introduce socialism and eradicate the grinding poverty of the tenement slums, the back-breaking manual toil of the mines and workshops and the endless cycle of premature death resulting from poverty-induced diseases. No militant of the ILP or Hardy's early Labour Party would have seen Home Rule as a constitutional diversion. It was about seizing the levers of state power to change Scotland for the better. It still is. But Scottish Labour sold its Home Rule birthright for a massive pottage in the era after the Second World War. Instead, Scottish Labour MPs became the stalwarts of a new unionism. In part, they were lured by the trappings of office, the ministerial driver followed by the aristocratic airmen. In part, to be charitable, some came to believe that muscular state control from the centre was a necessary part of introducing socialism. Alas, apart from a brief few years in the late 1940s, that socialism disappeared from the agenda. Instead, Labour sought votes from the comfortable aspirational middle classes and feared the wrath of the Tory press. In the 75 years between 1945 and today, Britain has had 44 years of Tory rule thanks to unionist Labour. Labour's 31 years in office included with the incompetent Wilson Callaghan administrations that spent their time trying to muzzle the trades unions or giving away Britain's newfound oil wealth for a pittance. Left to their own devices, Callaghan's backbenchers spent their time sabotaging the first devolution bill. Remember the infamous 40% that ensured the majority vote for Scottish devolution in 1979 was set by Callaghan in the most outrageous anti-democratic move of any Westminster government since the Second World War. Result? There was no devolved Scottish Assembly to protect the nation from the social deprivations and deindustrialisation of the Thatcher years. This we can blame squarely on Scottish Labour's hordes of faceless backbench MPs who fought devolution tooth and nail lest it deprive them of their gravy train. Their bogus claims that SNP votes brought down the Callaghan administration and ushered in Mrs Thatcher are mere crocodile tears and hypocritical ones at that. The decision of the SNP to vote against Callaghan was a direct response to Labour's refusal to implement the democratic vote for devolution. I take no pleasure in Labour's post-war apostasy on Scottish Home Rule or its mindless sabotage of the 1979 devolution referendum. I was a member of Scottish Labour for 16 years and served a decade as a Labour councillor. Those of us who saw ourselves as Home Rulers and Socialists had to fight tooth and nail against self-serving, frequently corrupt, neo-Stalinists for whom machine politics had replaced serving the people. Little has changed since I quit in 1996 after the arrival of the neo-Thatcherite Tony Blair. Last week, Labour's only MP in Scotland, Ian Murray, got his wish and Scottish Labour set their face against not only independence but a second independence referendum. This in a week that saw an opinion poll putting support for Indy at 52%. Murray has a plan. It is to reposition Scotlab as the leading unionist party, replacing Carlo's lacklustre Tories as main opposition to the SNP. That is not a daft idea given Bojo's utter incompetence during the COVID-19 crisis. To succeed, Murray and Co will have to bleat on and on about independence to the detriment of any social agenda, not that they have one. Out too is any reference to federalism and without any explanation of the vast 
Till now, Richard Leonard, ScotLab's titular leader, has made vague references to federalism in a desperate bid to keep pro-Indy working-class voters on side. This ploy worked after a fashion as it gave younger pro-Corbyn voters a reason to support Labour in the December election. But Corbyn has gone, and Labour has returned to its middle-class safe in Sir Keir's hands orientation. So Murray has seized the moment and buried federalism once and for all, and not a bat squeak from Mr Leonard. I have a grudging admiration for Ian Murray. He is a formidable foe and is willing to gamble politically. Meanwhile, and after 13 years in office, the SNP administration is vulnerable. Nicola governs resolutely from the centre. Her caution may not suffice in an era where everything is falling apart economically. She might cash in her high personal poll ratings and seek pastors new, leaving the SNP with no obvious leader and no obvious strategy to get in DREV2, which is a strong argument for separating the independence movement organisationally from the SNP leadership, as Leslie Riddick argued in these pages recently. But regardless of what is happening in the independence camp, Ian Murray's attempt to reposition Scotland as the main unionist party is a strategy born of desperation. It can be nothing more than Labour's last throw of the dice. For a party that is unwilling to let Scottish voters decide for themselves is a party that does not trust the people. Such a party is seeking only to defend its own little patch, not to build a new better society in the manner of Keir Hardy. You've been listening to George Caravan, Why I Grudgingly Admire Murray for Desperate Last Throw of Dice. The National, Monday the 8th of June 2020. SNP set for huge Holyrood election win and mandate for Indy Ref 2 by Hannah Carmichael. The SNP will win an overall majority and have an overwhelming mandate for Indy Ref 2 in 2021, according to an exclusive bombshell poll which puts the party on an incredible 53% of the constituency vote. The panel-based poll commissioned by Scott Goes Pop also indicates that Nicola Sturgeon's party would gain 48% of the regional list ballot vote in next year's Holyrood elections. Seat projections based on this would see the SNP gaining an additional nine seats, bringing the number of SNP MSPs to 72, a thumping pro-independence majority, even before you add in the projected five seats for the Scottish Greens. This would dramatically increase pressure on Boris Johnson to grant a Section 30 order to hold Indy Ref 2. Jackson Carlos Scottish Tories are projected to lose six seats, bringing their total down to 25, while Richard Leonard's Scottish Labour Party set to lose five seats, leaving them with 19 Holyrood politicians. And it's looking set to be an even more turbulent time for the Conservatives down in Westminster with the poll revealing that, as it stands, the party would lose every one of its six Scottish constituencies to the SNP, who would gain 10 seats to bring them to 58 in total. That would leave them short just one seat of sweeping Scotland, Labour's Ian Murray in Edinburgh South. The figures have been revealed in the wake of the Dominic Cummings scandal, in which the Prime Minister's top aide was caught making trips between London and Durham during lockdown. The special adviser to Boris Johnson caused much controversy and faced calls to resign after his movements were uncovered, but he's remained in his position and has failed to show any remorse for the trips. Johnson was also urged to sack Cummings after the breach in rules, but refused to do so, and instead backed him along with many other Tory politicians.
Since then, Britain-wide polls have shown that support for the Conservatives has dropped, with the suggestion that much of the decrease is down to the scandal. James Kelly of Scott Goes Pop said he could see no reason why the same trend wouldn't be seen in Scotland when commissioning his own poll, the first in Scotland since the controversy emerged. Reflecting on the projected massive hit to the Scots Tories down south, Kelly said, One prediction I did confidently make is that the Conservatives would suffer a significant decline in their Westminster vote share, but what I hadn't anticipated is that the gap between the SNP and the Tories would be large enough that the electoral calculus projection model would show the Scottish Tories losing every single one of their six Westminster seats to the SNP. Douglas Ross, Alistair Jack, even David Mundell, all gone. Kelly added that the data is a savage indictment of Boris Johnson's mishandling of the COVID-19 crisis. The Westminster projections also suggest that the Lib Dems will lose all four of their Scottish constituencies, including Orkney and Shetland, which has been a safe seat for the party for decades. Kelly says the one crumb of comfort for the Tories is the fact that they would remain the largest opposition party in Holyrood though their representation would be a far cry from the days of former leader Ruth Davidson. SNP Deputy Leader Keith Brown said, This poll shows strong public support for the SNP Scottish Government and our First Minister in dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. In contrast, the poll makes for dismal reading for the Tories after the party's terrible handling of the Dominic Cummings scandal. Labour too continue to be out of touch with the people of Scotland and losing even more ground in Scotland. We're taking nothing for granted, but with majority support for independence, we will work for every vote at the next election. The Westminster system is broken, and it's time for Scotland to determine our own future. By Hannah Carmichael. This is Sport from The National on Tuesday the 9th of June. Anti-racism protests could change society, says Gareth Southgate by Press Association. England manager Gareth Southgate believes the recent anti-racism protests around the world will change society. The last two weeks have seen campaigns gain momentum across the globe following the death of George Floyd, who was killed by a police officer in America. A host of high-profile people in the world of sport have spoken out in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and Southgate thinks this could be a catalyst for change. It has triggered a reaction around the world. The Three Lions boss, who has had to deal with racism after his team were targeted in Montenegro and Bulgaria, said on Sky Sports Football Show. I've been here before. We have spoken about moments that might change society. We have to hope that this does. It certainly does feel different when I look at the broader reaction. I haven't spoken to my players about the incident last week because I know where they stand on it. I know the players very well. I've had enough conversations with them to know they would be emotional, frustrated, angry, passionate. I know Troy, uh, Townsend, the head of development at Kick It Out, and Raheem Sterling used the word tired and I have a lot of empathy on where they stand with everything. Sterling has been one of the leading voices and in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic passionately said on Newsnight that the only virus was racism. 
He also questioned the opportunities of people from black, Asian and ethnic minority, BAME, backgrounds get at the top level of sport, citing how easy it has been for Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard to get top management jobs ahead of Saul Campbell and Ashley Cole. Sport England board member Chris Grant has also spoken of a systemic problem and Southgate says it is time to change. People have spoken brilliantly this week, Southgate added. Chris Grant is somebody who I have met a number of times. He lectured me in a couple of courses I went on about the institutional racism that he feels exists in sporting bodies. I think all of those areas are where we have got to focus our attention, opportunities, this feeling that Troy spoke about that people feel there aren't the opportunities there so young black people will refrain from taking qualifications or getting themselves prepared because they feel there is a ceiling to what is possible. And we need their voices in those decision-making areas and we need to show people that the opportunities do exist. This has got to be at every level of the game. Sterling pointed a finger at the long-running disparity between the number of high-profile BAME players and the dearth of those who go on to win significant managerial, coaching or administrative jobs. This is a time to speak on these subjects, speak on injustice, especially in my field, said the England International. There's something like 500 players in the Premier League and a third of them are black and we have no representation of us in the hierarchy, no representation of us in the coaching staffs. There's not a lot of faces that we can relate to and have conversations with. With these protests that are going on, it's all well and good just talking, but it's time that we need to have conversations to be able to spark debates. But at the same time, it's coming together and finding a solution to be able to spark change because... We can talk as much as we want about changing and putting people, black people, in these positions that I do feel they should be in. I'll give you a perfect one. There's Steven Gerrard, your Frank Lampard, you have your Sol Campbells and you have your Ashley Coles. All had great careers, all played for England. At the same time, they've all respectfully done their coaching badges to coach at the highest level. And the two that haven't been given the right opportunities are the two black former players. Sterling also feels there is a lack of representation in the game's governance, suggesting a more diverse mix is needed in the corridors of power. Asked what would represent success for the change movement, he said, when there's more black people in positions... When I can have someone from a black background for me to be able to go to in the FA with a problem I have within the club, these will be the times that I know that change is happening. Meanwhile, the PGA Tour has announced that an 8.46am tea time will be reserved for the memory of Floyd, who prosecutors claim was knelt on by police for 8 minutes and 46 seconds at this week's Charles Schwab Challenge. A statement on the tour's Twitter feed said, As the PGA Tour commits to amplifying the voices and efforts underway to end systemic issues of racial and social injustices impacting our country, we have reserved the 8.46am tea time at the Charles Schwab Challenge to pay our respects to the memory of George Floyd. We will pay respects at 8.46am during each round with a moment of silence, prayer and reflection. 
England lock, Maro Itoji hopes that opening up conversations around race and prejudice can be a catalyst for change, telling the BBC's Rugby Union weekly podcast, The first step is to be very self-reflective, acknowledge your bias, and once you've done that, actively do things to be fair. Former England goalkeeper Peter Shilton faced a backlash after criticising the removal of a statue of slave trader Edward Colston by protesters in Bristol. Shilton tweeted, All you people who are not happy with a government democratically voted by the people with 80-seat majority and our great country, please go and live somewhere run by dictators, not elected, and see where your actions, like pulling down statues, gets you. However, Shilton's former England teammate Gary Lineker urged him to, quote, take your gloves off before you tweet. While Stan Collymore wrote, Goalie, you're a hero of mine, club and country, but seeing an opposing view, particularly one which causes a lot of pain for many, and that's the key word here, needs to be looked at from both, not just one side. And that article was by Press Association 2020. You're listening to The National, as published on Tuesday the 9th of June 2020. Comment. Real cost of the US's chlorinated chicken could be far from cheap, by Michael Fry, colonist. Nobody doubts nowadays that foot and mouth disease must be controlled and eradicated. When it occurs, most often in cattle but also in other farm animals, it gives the beasts baneful blisters and high fever, making them unfit for human consumption. Because it spreads at great speed, the usual method of control is the slaughter of entire herds around the locations of the outbreak, whether or not infection in each of them has been proved. Yet there was a time when none of these seemed to be the right sort of reaction. In the modern period, the first big epidemic came in 1865. It spread rapidly through Europe and reached France, which then as now had a huge agricultural industry with a lively trade across the Channel to the UK. Sitting in number 10 Downing Street, the Liberal cabinet of Lord Palmerston felt not at all sure what to do. While a ban on French imports was being publicly called for, the ministers felt this would go against one great political principle they all fervently favoured, the principle of free trade. It was less than 20 years since the UK had led the world in abolishing taxes and tariffs on imports from abroad. Those years saw the problem of how to feed the new industrial working class solved. The prosperity of the Victorian era opened for everybody. Could the free trade that had made this possible now really be abandoned? To recall such an obscure episode in UK policymaking is to remind ourselves that some aspects of it do not change. One basic fact about these islands is that they cannot feed themselves. They therefore have to find means of maximising their non-food production to exchange for the food their citizens need to eat. Whether or not Boris Johnson realises as much, it is a question of no less importance for him than it was for Lord Palmerston. Two centuries ago, the question had been answered by the repeal of barriers to trade. Today, the question is posed anew by the UK's decision to leave the EU. In Victorian times, we found a long-term answer. Can we now do the same again for the 21st century? It's a big question, and the answer, or rather answers, will be dauntingly complex. 
Luckily, they are at this moment being distilled by a particular controversy that any of us can follow, the one over chlorinated chicken from the US. Top of Boris Johnson's commercial priorities is a trade accord with Donald Trump, so the vast US market can be opened up to UK goods, and especially services, on a scale that will more than compensate for what we may be about to lose in Europe. Trump prefers bilateral agreements with single countries to the sort of give-and-take typical among global blocks of trading nations bound by strict rules. Almost the first thing he did on entering the White House was to end American membership of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, in which he claimed his country was being taken for a ride by the wily Orientals. Now he wants the UK to drop the EU's ban on imports of American chicken that has been enforced since 1997. Long the object of intensive lobbying in Washington, it would be symbolic of a much wider new relationship between the two English-speaking economic powers. To the US, agricultural trade appears the obvious place to start constructing this new relationship. It is, for example, the world's biggest breeder of poultry. Nearly one-fifth of its production is exported. Lower hygiene standards make its chickens the cheapest on international markets, even while they come to us carefully prepared and packaged. Whereas the US has a massive surplus of farm produce, the UK has followed a course of fitting into the EU's common ag agricultural policy by going for high quality and specialised lines, now worth £7 billion a year, so by no means negligible as an export. In other words, our UK market does not seem to be one in which chlorinated chicken will easily fit. At least for a transitional period, we will stick to the stricter regime of European regulation so as to achieve a superior result in terms of foodstuff quality. But the American method is cheap and the European method is expensive. Therefore, once we finally leave the EU, it should be possible for American chicken to win a larger share of our UK market. More to the point, US agriculture has been nothing like as closely regulated by the federal government in Washington as European agriculture is by the EU Commission in Brussels. Across the 50 states, the abattoirs for slaughtering the wretched chickens get dangerously filthy with the offal and excrement that squirt out of them. Americans solve the problem by at once rinsing the edible flesh and disinfecting chlorine to kill the toxic bugs they may carry. In the UK, most of us associate chlorine with cleaning the toilet rather than cleaning food, yet persuading our negotiators to drop the existing ban and accept US standards is in Washington a high priority for a trade deal. To survive the fresh competition, many of our producers would need to lower their standards too. This cheap food might also be exported to Europe in the transitional period. Here is the reason why in Brussels they propose the UK should maintain European standards indefinitely. The chief EU negotiator, Michel Barnier, has put chicken at the top of his list of detailed points due to be settled in the negotiations now underway. Of course, the battle is about much more than chlorinated chicken. This particular US agricultural export keeps reading its head because it sums up far broader arguments about the future of relations among the different trading blocs. For Americans, one prize of Brexit is the chance to break open to its agricultural surpluses a major European economy. The US has suffered years of failure in trade talks with the EU, which refuses to weaken its food and farming standards just because the other side cannot live up to them. The EU takes a different view to the US on food safety. It applies the precautionary principle, banning substances and processes that are potentially harmful till they are proved to be safe. The US tends to accept chemicals till they are proved to be harmful. 
It sees the EU objections to its goods at, as at bottom protectionist. British farmers know that if US imports of cheap but potentially unhygienic meat are allowed, they could face ruin. The European industry fears the same. Johnson needs to be clear how voters might weigh up consumption versus welfare, especially during Brexit. The UK cannot have it both ways, and it is another area where plausible bluster will never make up for unsound policy. As a previous victim of coronavirus, Boris can hardly afford a second lockdown. You've been listening to Michael Fry, The Real Cost of the US's Chlorinated Chicken. Recorded from The National, 9th of June 2020. Angry, tired, had enough. Scotland's Justice Secretary on Racism. I am angry, I am tired, I have had enough. I'm also certain that I am not the only person of colour to feel these emotions when we have once again been confronted with the brutality of racism. Much of the world is united in anxiety about the impact coronavirus is having on our loved ones and our communities. The evil scourge of racism that has once again reared its ugly head as another pandemic, another illness, another virus that we have to make it our collective duty to tackle. This is not a time to mince our words, to be mealy-mouthed or sit on the fence. Let me be unequivocal. I stand in full solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and stand full square behind those who demand justice for George Floyd. As I said earlier this week, the understandable anger from George Floyd's death has exposed again the sad truth that racism continues to blight every nation on earth, that no society, including Scotland, can claim to be immune from it, and we must come together to eradicate it. I want to express my enduring support for the Black Lives Matter movement and for all the organisations and individuals who have made their voices heard and spoken out against injustice around the world. I have been an anti-racist campaigner my whole life. I have been the victim of racism and I have stood with others who have been targeted by racists. So I fully understand and feel the anger and the sadness that has led people to want to gather together and to show solidarity and community at this time. But the threat from COVID-19 remains with us, and I again urge people not to attend mass gatherings which pose a clear risk to public health, even with social distancing in place. The Scottish Government's advice is that still that no more than eight people should meet at any one time, and for those people to be from no more than two households. That is why I have not and will not lend my support to the in-person peaceful protests that were planned for this weekend. Indeed, we have seen evidence of the disproportionate impact that COVID-19 has on people from black and ethnic minority communities in the UK. So street protests could pose an additional risk to the very people whose lives we are saying matter and who must be equally protected from harm. So I'm urging people to explore alternative ways to make their voices heard on this vital issue, including, for example, through social media and by engaging friends, families and others such as work colleagues. There's a range of social media campaigns such as Take the Knee that people can engage with to show their support. I was heartened by images of Police Scotland officers embracing this global initiative to call out racism. And as ever, I would encourage anyone who is a victim of racist hate incident or a witness to one to contact Police Scotland or one of the third-party reporting centres that continue to provide a service by telephone or online. In Scotland, we value our diverse minority ethnic communities, the vital contribution they make and the important role they play in enriching our country socially, culturally and economically. However, the events in the US force us to hold a mirror 
up to ourselves and confront the overt as well as the structural racism that exists within our own society here in Scotland. We cannot and will not tolerate hate crime, prejudice or discrimination of any kind. As I have said in recent days, it is not enough to simply not be racist. We must be loudly and unequivocally anti-racist by supporting our minority ethnic communities and condemning racism, hate and injustice wherever we find it. I truly hope that we will soon be able to gather together and show our collective solidarity that black lives matter in the US and other countries and here at home. Until then, we must do all what is needed to protect the health of everyone in Scotland and follow the guidelines. That is the best and quickest way to ensure that we can continue along the path of easing lockdown and meet again sooner rather than later. The National. Tuesday the 9th of June 2020. Bannockburn closed until 2022 under Scots National Trust plans. By Christine Patterson. Visitors will be locked out of Bannockburn's award-winning attraction until 2022 under National Trust for Scotland closure plans the National can reveal. Seven sites will be mothballed for around a year and a half as part of a coronavirus recovery blueprint drawn up by the Heritage and Culture Charity. Many other sites won't reopen until the second quarter of 2021 as NTS plans to make 417 people that's 57% of its staff, redundant. The detail has emerged around one month after bosses promised radical action to cope with a projected £28 million shortfall caused by coronavirus closures. Staff said they were shocked to learn of the extent of the cut. Of the potential redundancies, 158 are in the south and west region, which will be the hardest hit with 86 others in the northeast and 77 in Edinburgh and the east where Bannockburn is situated. NTS says it wants to reopen the battlefield and monuments as soon as we're able, but the visitor centre, backed by £5 million in public funds, will have to stay shut. One NTS worker who asked not to be named during the ongoing redundancy consultation period told the National... Bannockburn is one of our most popular sites for schools. The complete closure until 2022 will be awful, particularly in terms of the symbolism of the site within our national psyche. It's a dangerous site to close in terms of public perception and national feeling towards the trust. The NTS has come under heavy fire in recent years after appointing outspoken unionist Neil Oliver to be its president. It's faced stiff cuts during the pandemic, with Tourism Secretary Fergus Ewing warning the Trust to be responsible. The NTS Centre at Bannockburn, which includes an interactive battle experience, is multi-award winning and attracted 65,000 people in the first year after the completion of its big money revamp in 2014. But NTS predicts an operating deficit of £38,879 this year. Seven other sites facing closure until 2022 include Souter Johnny's Cottage in Kirkoswald, House of the Bins near Linlithgow and Alexander Greek Thompson Treasure Homewood House in Glasgow, which is currently the subject of an extensive restoration. They all face deficits ranging from around £4,000 to £15,000. However, other properties expected to open earlier are also expected to land in the red. 
The 24-page document was emailed to NTS staff on Friday afternoon. Around the same time, members to the organisation were sent a pack of printable colouring pages and information on the Homewood House project. Almost half of jobs at risk, 56.6%, are visitor services assistants. Another 7% are rangers, while 3.8% are in gardening. In the document, NTS state that even if August reopenings are possible, it will be too expensive to return to business as normal due to predicted lower visitor numbers. The source told the National, If you are getting rid of the staff members who are engaging with families, then how do you ever expect new members to come forward in the future? Our properties deemed unsuitable to be opened, but the people on the ground who've been doing the work haven't been asked how it could work with social distancing. NTS said, A number of factors will be used to make final decisions, including the need for the trust to operate within its significantly reduced financial means, taking account of enabling safe visiting within varied property types, while also ensuring essential care and maintenance can continue. In relation to the Bannockburn Visitor Centre, at this stage we anticipate reopening the wider battlefield and monuments as soon as we're able. By Christine Patterson. This is Sport from The National on Wednesday the 10th of June 2020. Judd Trump happy to defend his world championship title anywhere by Press Association. Judd Trump would have no problem with the world championship taking place behind closed doors as he revealed he would be satisfied with defending his title in a car park somewhere. The world number one returned to the bays in the championship league where there are no spectators because of the stringent protocols behind snooker's resumption amid the coronavirus pandemic. Hush silences are a common theme in snooker, interrupted intermittently by occasional cheers and more general applause, and it is for that reason why Trump feels there is little difference in the new normal. If that extends into the defence of the title he won last year at the Crucible, which has been rescheduled to take place between July 31st and August 16th, then so be it. I'd be happy to defend it in a car park somewhere, said Trump, who failed to reach Thursday's Championship League final day. I don't really care. As long as it's on, it doesn't really matter where it is. It's the same for all the players. We're just happy to be out there playing. It doesn't really matter what's going on. We're just here in our little zone in this tournament and it's just good for everyone involved. There's not a real difference playing with a crowd. It, it doesn't make too much difference for anyone. I think this could work for every tournament. Snooker doesn't necessarily need to have a crowd in every single tournament, and it works on TV. It looks good on TV. The lack of spectators is most notable once someone has successfully made a long pot or played a particularly good snooker. But Trump added, you just don't notice those kind of things. The only way you do is if your concentration's not great, but when you're in amongst the balls and potting balls, to be honest, I just completely forget that there normally is a crowd there. Ryan Day finished top of Trump's group in the second phase in Milton Keynes after beating the world number one 3-0 in the opening match. Trump bounced back with a 3-1 win over Barry Hawkins, but lost the final frame in a 2-2 draw with David Gilbert after his opponent racked up a 120 break, seven shots away from a maximum.
Day only needed one frame in the group decider against Hawkins and got it at the first time of asking. And that article was by Press Association 2020. You're listening to The National as published on Wednesday the 10th of June 2020. Comment. Scotland's brutal slavery links must be confronted by Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh, columnist. George Floyd's murder has galvanised people across the world to re-examine their consciences on their own racist legacy and its implications for the present day. At home in Scotland, renewed discussion on the ill-gotten gains of slavery and our part in this terrible period in history has resulted in a petition circulating to rename the Glasgow streets which are named after slave owners such as Andrew Buchanan Street. Now Edinburgh Council has announced that a plaque will be added to Henry Dundas's monument in St Andrew's Square, the first Viscount Melville and infamous prolonger of slavery to protect the elite, to inform the public on his cruel and self-serving role in the trade in human beings. It's not the first time this suggestion has been aired to add accurate warts and all information to some of the less than savoury characters that populate our squares and gardens or lend their names to our streets. Dundas's own descendant, Benjamin Carey, has backed calls in the past for a plaque to inform on the true nature of his ancestors' role, and Professor Jeff Palmer of Edinburgh University has been pushing for the same since before 2018. Now world events have spurred the council into action rather than dithering over the correct language on the plaque, which has delayed its installation. It would seem to me that the correct language involves the truth. Fortunately, with the world watching, minds now seem to be focused and undistracted by political correctness or offending our imperial masters. And since it was Oliver Cromwell who coined the phrase warts and all, no doubt he would not object to a few choice words about his depredations in Ireland and Scotland being added to his monument outside the House of Commons. However, as usual on social media, discussions on our historic past and how we address the truth has opened a hornet's nest of opposing views that run concurrent to the outrage slash joy at the pulling down of 17th century slave owner Edward Colston's statue during the Black Lives Matter protests this past weekend and then sinking him in Bristol Harbour. Condemnation for the protesters' actions has been loud and proud from the UK government. No surprise there, and no awards for empathy for a Prime Minister with his rather loud dog whistle. As a woman of colour, I find it astonishing that we are still debating the rights and wrongs of highlighting the uglier corners of our national history. Surely it is valid to recognise our historic crimes and misdemeanours as much as our successes. It's about context, and it's about making amends. It's about understanding who we are and how we got here. This I understand on a deep and personal level, because the legacy of racism and the dark seam of prejudice that joins these historical figures to present-day trolls and bigoted abusers is a real and present experience for me, my family and my BAME friends. We don't need a street name or a statue to remind us of past oppressors, of deep-rooted inequality and violent injustice. That reminder is part of our everyday lives. In the particular case of Henry Dundas, the obstruction of abolitionism was only one of the old rogue's claims to infamy. He was the last politician to be impeached by the Westminster Parliament, only Tony Blair has come close since, and his cruel suppression of Scottish radicalism resulted in many good men being transported. 
Not for nothing was he nicknamed the Great Tyrant. Perhaps the best way forward would be to transport the tall plinth monument to Thomas Muir and his fellow radicals, which stands in Calton Cemetery to St Andrew's Square and leave the erstwhile uncrowned King of Scotland languishing in the graveyard. As is often the case in my wonderful adopted hometown, someone in Glasgow has already got ahead of the game and put up alternative names for some of these iconic city streets, such as George Floyd Street under the sign for Buchanan Street and Joseph Knight Street for Dundas Street. Of course, it was Glasgow which took steps back in the 1980s to rename St George's Place Nelson Mandela Place to highlight apartheid and injustice in South Africa, a bold act celebrated in our own Commonwealth Games opening ceremony in 2014. The immovable can be moved. To me, it makes sense to generally keep the statues in place, but with a plaque explaining who they were and what they did, or to erect alternative monuments celebrating the people's history. This is a project that will keep councils across Scotland pretty busy for the foreseeable future as our nation is littered with commemorations to self-interested individuals or violent aggressors. Scotland's statues and street names reveal a litany of oppression and yet still we allow these tyrants to dominate our daily landscape. When I walk along Cumberland Street in Edinburgh, the hairs rise on the back of my neck when I think of how he butchered the Highlanders in his bloody retribution after Culloden. To have his name on one of our most beautiful streets in the capital city is an insult to their memory and their living ancestors. It's quite incredible that his name has been left to tarnish our capital without correction for so long. Similar sentiments have been long felt about the statue of the notorious Duke of Sutherland, the Manny, which towers over Golsby. After generations of speculation about whether the clearances Duke should be officially removed or even unofficially blown up, a band of Highlanders led by the late Dennis MacLeod found the perfect answer some 15 years ago by erecting a beautiful counter-memorial to honour the achievements of those who were cleared in Helmsdale. Generally, the victors write the history, name the streets and raise the statues to themselves. There is one notable exception to this. Scotland's national bard Robert Burns, who has more memorials around the planet than any non-religious figure save Queen Victoria and Christopher Columbus. Ah, I hear the detractors say, but didn't Burns once accept a job in a slavery-based sugar plantation? Indeed, but Burns was an abolitionist, wrote The Slave's Lament, and was the poetic inspiration of the great liberator Abraham Lincoln. If Robert Burns had gone to Jamaica, no doubt he would have written powerfully and beautifully about man's inhumanity to man, and perhaps hastened the demise of evil. The mighty Dundas, Butcher Cumberland, the opportunist Andrew Buchanan and the Clearances Duke are just some of the greats whose misdeeds demand explanation and correction. Instead of blissful ignorance, we need to know the honest truth about these men who have been commemorated in stone or immortalised in name. Otherwise, who are the Scots, new or old, and who do we want to be? These are the questions thrown at us in facing the facts about our history. You've been listening to Scotland's Brutal Slavery Links Must Be Confronted. Recorded from the National, 10th of June 2020. The history behind Edward Colston and the Scottish slave traders. Martin Hannan. What's the story? On Sunday, the statue of Edward Colston was torn down in Bristol. 
The action by protesters taking part in a Black Lives Matters demonstration happened because Colston was a merchant who made his fortune in the slave trade in the 17th and 18th centuries. Seen by some as an act of vandalism and by others as a legitimate protest against Britain's years of involvement in slavery, the toppling of Colston has been shown internationally and is undoubtedly the main image of a weekend in which tens of thousands took to streets and parks across the UK to demonstrate about the murder of black man George Floyd, 46, by police officers in the city of Minneapolis in the state of Minnesota in the USA. Who was Edward Colston? Born into a mercantile family in Bristol in 1636, Colston soon joined the family firm, trading to Europe in goods such as wine and cloth. As the 17th century progressed, new markets opened up trading to America and the West Indies. Bristol, like Glasgow and other Clydeports, was ideally placed for trade with the Americas and after Colston and his family moved to London, he was in exactly the right place and with the right connections when the Royal African Company was established in 1660 by King Charles II and his brother, the Duke of York, the future King James II, along with prominent merchants. From 1680, Colston became a leading member of the company which had been given exclusive rights to trade in gold, silver, ivory and slaves on the west coast of the African continent. Its 1663 charter specifically mentioned slavery. He became deputy governor of the company, in effect as boss, at a time when the slave trade was booming. In the 1680s, the company was transporting 5,000 slaves a year from Africa to the West Indies in particular, where slaves suffered a horrendous life on sugar plantations. After the arrival of William and Mary on the thrones of England and Scotland, Colston went into business for himself, and it is estimated that in his time at the Royal African Company and afterwards, he was involved in the transportation of tens of thousands of slaves. He owned as many as 40 ships, most of them working out of Bristol. But after selling his shares to King William, he withdrew from the slave trade in 1692 and went into banking and money lending. He saw no irony in his Christian devotion while selling fellow human beings, and after a short spell as Tory MP for Bristol, though he did not actually live there, he died at his home in Mortlake, Surrey on October 11th, 1721, aged 84. He had showered Bristol with philanthropic works and the city named streets and schools after him, though the 18-foot-high bronze statue was only erected in 1895. Was Bristol the centre of the slave trade? It was one of them, and after the Royal Company of Africa's monopoly was removed, Bristol became the leading port in the so-called triangular trade. Ships would fetch slaves from Africa, take them to the USA and Caribbean islands, then bring back goods such as cotton to England via Bristol. Other major centres of the slave trade were London and Liverpool in England, and Port Glasgow and Greenock on the Clyde. Bristol's heyday was between 1720 and 1740, following London's many decades as the main slave trade centre. Liverpool gradually became the main slave trade port until slavery was abolished across the British Empire in 1833. Though the trade has been in decline for many years before that as the campaign grew to outlaw slavery. How long was slavery legal? Centuries. The Doomsday Book records that one-tenth of the population of England were slaves in 1086. But Norman influence and the opposition of the Catholic Church saw slavery, white slavery, it should be added, peter out by the year 1200. 
There have been reports that some white Scots were sold as slaves by Oliver Cromwell after the Battle of Dunbar in 1650, and Jacobites were sold by the British authorities after the 45 Rising. But in fact, these slaves were actually indentured servants. The difference between a slave and an indentured servant was a matter of semantics, mostly. The enslavement of black people was always legal, right up to 1807 in England. A court case, Knight v. Wedderburn, established that slavery was illegal in Scotland from 1778, but Scots still took part in the trade down south. Britain was not the only state involved in the African slave trade, but did it better than most, better that is if you consider only 20% fatalities during the two-month passage to the Americas to be something to be proud about. Scotland had its fair share of slavers? Indeed. Though their apologists will always point out that many Scottish merchants were merely tobacco lords who didn't control or own slaves, but simply got rich on the back of products picked by slaves. There were many Scots who were involved in the slave trade and in the management of slaves on plantations in the Caribbean. One of them was nearly Rabbi Burns. He wrote the Kilmarnock edition to fund his trip to Jamaica, where he would become a bookkeeper on a plantation. The poems made him an overnight sensation and he stayed in Scotland. The merchants included Andrew Corain, Andrew Buchanan, George Wilson, John Glassford, James Oswald, John Gordon, Archibald Ingram and Colin Dunlop. They all have streets named after them in Glasgow, which also has Merchant City commemorating these men who exploited slaves. Nor should Edinburgh feel cosy. A large part of the new town was built with the profits of plantations. The National, Wednesday the 10th of June 2020. Architecture Society blasts National Trust Scotland over 2022 closure plan. By Christine Patterson. Heritage experts have hit out as the National Trust for Scotland, the NTS, plans to mothball a historic house until 2022. Homewood in Glasgow is totally unique, the only remaining interior by classical revival architect Alexander Greek Thompson that's open to the public. But under a blueprint aimed at carrying NTS through a catch crisis caused by coronavirus closures, it's set to stay shut until 2022, with staff numbers slashed. That's despite the ongoing restoration of the exquisite murals covering the walls, something NTS describes as painstaking work and which has been supported by public donations. The stunning and ornate work was carried out for paper magnate James Cooper in the 1850s. The Alexander Thompson Society, which is dedicated to the preservation, promotion and understanding of his work, which was influential overseas, has now called on NTS to explain the decision, saying there are far better alternatives. The Society told The National, Homewood relies on a tireless group of dedicated volunteers who run the guided tours, the tea room and the shop, meaning that the overheads associated with staffing the site should be low. The Society has asked NTS to explain why the decision has been taken to close the property entirely in 2021, instead of, for example, considering weekend-only openings as an intermediate measure, with a full reopening following in 2022. This would also lessen the impact on the wider network of businesses in Cathcart and the South Side. The Law Society continued, We strongly encourage NTS to reconsider their decision, 
and have asked for the opportunity to discuss this with them directly, in particular to understand whether there is support that we can provide with regards to fundraising, volunteer recruitment or event coordination that might help the Trust to change their mind. The National revealed NTS plans to keep eight sites shut until 2022, with many others closed until into 2021. The Alexander Thompson Society says it's disappointed not to have received notice from NTS. Yesterday, NTS Chief Executive Simon Skinner acknowledged that some people may be disappointed that sites, including Homewood and Bannockburn Visitor Centre, face extended closure. But emphasising an ask for public funding, he said, These are not choices we wanted to make, but we need to take them to ensure that the Trust gets through this period and emerges from the other side ready to do what it does best. He went on, We have always existed for the benefit of the people of Scotland, as funded by our members and supporters. With a little more help we can save the Trust, and in turn we can return to saving Scotland's national treasures at our full capacity. However, The Alexander Thompson Society says it has serious concerns on the impact of the closure, which it says could lead to the loss of the immense bank of knowledge and expertise held by current staff and volunteers. It said, With only one full-time member of staff retained, the ability of this knowledge to be easily retained and for the consistent management of Homewood to be maintained will be jeopardised. One of the Society's primary goals when it was first established was to save Homewood and to ensure that it remains cared for and accessible, which is a goal we remain committed to. As the only Alexander Greek Thompson interior that's open to the public, we believe it is vital to Glasgow's heritage that Homewood be reopened to the public in 2021. By Kirstine Patterson. This is Sport from The National on Wednesday the 10th of June 2020. US modify Ryder Cup qualification as Steve Stricker given six captains picks by Press Association. The United States have changed their qualifying criteria for this year's Ryder Cup with six players earning selection through its points list while the remaining six will be chosen by captain Steve Stricker. Previous processes have seen eight qualify through the points system, which is based on prize money won in important tournaments, while the captain's picks would make up the remainder of the team. However, the coronavirus pandemic, which has led to 11 cancelled events on the PGA Tour in the last few months, has led to a rethink. The BMW Championship, which concludes on August 30th, will mark the cutoff for points accrued through the season for US selection for the Ryder Cup, scheduled to take place from September the 25th to the 27th at Whistling Straits. With all the various changes to the 2020 schedule, it quickly became apparent that we would need to amend our selection criteria, Stricker said. After many deliberate discussions, we collectively agreed that a smaller sampling of 2020 events, including just one major championship, would justify a one-week extension of the qualification window and an increase in the number of captain selections from four to six. These changes were sparked by circumstance but conceived with integrity in mind. In the end, we believe they will allow us to put our best team together to compete at Whistling Straits in September. 
The PGA Tour will resume this week with the Charles Schwab Challenge at Fort Worth, Texas, the first event to be held after a three-month hiatus and one that will go ahead behind closed doors. There is considerable opposition to playing a Ryder Cup without fans though, with world number three Brooks Koepka suggesting he would consider pulling out of any such event. Koepka, a team member in 2016 and 2018, said, I don't want to play if there's no fans. The fans make that event. The fans make that special. If we're not playing in front of fans, it's just like us playing a game in Florida. If there's no fans out there, you're not going to see guys fist pumping and that passion behind it. Yes, I love to play for my country, I love to do all these things, but it's important to have the fans there, we feed off it. I just don't want to play without fans. Europe star player, world number one Rory McIlroy, does not believe anyone will ultimately have a decision to make about declining a call-up. He has long spoken against holding the event in a bubble and is now more confident than ever that it will not take place as planned without fan involvement. I'm pretty sure they won't carry on without spectators, so I don't think that would have to be an option that I would have to consider, he said. I don't think I'll be put in that position to make that choice. I think there's enough people within the game that don't want the Ryder Cup to happen without fans. That's why I sort of have this conviction that it wouldn't happen if fans wouldn't be allowed. And that article was by Press Association 2020. Recorded from the National, 11th of June 2020. Henry Dundas, the Scotsman who kept slavery going, Hamish McPherson. What's the story? His name was usually only known to students of Scottish history and researchers in the slave trade, but now clamour is growing for the removal of the statue of Henry Dundas, the first Viscount Melville from St Andrew's Square in Edinburgh, as awareness has grown that he was instrumental in prolonging the slave trade involving the UK for many years. There is no doubt that Dundas opposed the abolition of the slave trade and fought to keep slavery legal even after British trading in slaves was abolished in 1807. Slavery was vital for the sugar, tobacco and cotton industries that linked Britain, the USA and Caribbean and Dundas helped to make sure it was prolonged. If the statue goes and the more likely outcome is that a plaque detailing his involvement with preserving the slave trade will be erected, then several streets in Scotland should also have their names changed. Dundas Street, Melville Street and Melville Crescent in Edinburgh and Dundas Street in Glasgow spring to mind, plus many other streets across Scotland and elsewhere commemorating Dundas Melville. It is well past the time that light must be shed on the activities of Dundas. Some experts say that had it not been for him, slavery could have been abolished 15 years before the passing of the Slave Trade Act of 1807. That act signalled the death knell of Britain's incredibly lucrative involvement in slavery. But the practice of slavery was not finally abolished in the British Empire until 1833. Who was Dundas? Born in the Royal Mile of Edinburgh on April 28, 1742, Dundas was the fourth son of Scotland's most senior judge, Lord Dundas, the Lord President of the Court of Session. He was educated at Dalkeith Grammar and the Royal High School of Edinburgh before studying law at Edinburgh University. He became a member of the Faculty of Advocates, aged only 21, and just three years later became Solicitor General for Scotland. He was appointed Lord Advocate in 1775, but was by then set on a political career, having been elected MP for Midlothian the previous year. 
It helped that he married into a fabulously wealthy family, the Rannies, or Rennies of Melville Castle, near Dalkeith. Dundas was 24 when he married Elizabeth Rennie, who was just 14, and was the time, at the time all her money and possessions became his. She committed adultery and Dundas divorced her, keeping the cash and property and ensuring his former wife never saw her four children again, even though she lived to 97. Nice guy. Robert Barnes called him Slee, meaning crafty, while Samuel Johnson's biographer, James Boswell, a lawyer who knew him well from the courts, said Dundas was a coarse, unfettered, unfanciful dog. He himself raged against the discrimination and insults he suffered because he spoke in broad Scots. He became a politician. One thing that can be said about Dundas was he was not a man of the people, as was shown by his many nicknames, such as the Uncrowned King of Scotland, the Great Tyrant and King Harry IX. He was, however, a master of real politic who could switch sides in an instant. He had totally dominated political affairs in Scotland until he was appointed Home Secretary in 1791 and Britain's first Secretary of State of War in 1794. With his great friend William Pitt, the younger, as Prime Minister, Dundas mentored the younger man and continued to run the government of Scotland, using his powers of patronage to spread his influence across the country. In the period after the French Revolution, Dundas cracked down hard on any show of radicalism and he worked ceaselessly to build up the Union. But it all went pear-shaped for Dundas in 1806 when he became the last politician in the UK to be impeached for the alleged misappropriation of public funds while at the War Department. He won the case before the House of Lords, but his political career was over. Dundas died in 1811, but not before he had ensured that his son Robert would succeed him in maintaining the family's grip on political power. Did he not win the case that saw slavery made illegal in Scotland? That's the really infuriating thing about him. In the seminal case of Joseph Knight versus John Wedderburn in 1788, Dundas acted for the runaway slave Knight against the man who still claimed ownership of him. Dundas fought the case in the appeal court and won a ruling that slavery was illegal in Scotland. It is also the case that he realised the political ground was changing and in 1792 he pushed for the abolition of the slave trade but at the last minute, probably under pressure from rich merchants, he got the Commons to agree to ending it gradually, which in effect meant 15 years. In that time, around 500,000 men, women and children were taken into slavery from Africa. Is it worth pulling down the statue? The column on which the statue stands is the original 1821 Melville Monument, which, which was paid for mostly by his friends, who he helped to make rich, and also naval, naval personnel who had their careers enhanced when he was the Secretary of State for War and then First Lord of the Admiralty. There was no great contribution from the public, and nor was there when the statue was added. Dundas should also be commemorated for many things, such as strengthening the Union and expanding the Empire, but that's another story. On second thoughts, tear it down. The National, Thursday the 11th of June 2020. Coronavirus Live. The Edinburgh International Book Festival will take place online this year after it was cancelled due to the coronavirus pandemic. 
there will be more than 100 events for adults, families and children, with both live and pre-recorded conversations featuring leading writers, poets and participants from around the world. Events at the festival, which runs from Saturday, August 15th to Monday, August 31st, will be free to view and available through the book festival's own website. Full details of the programme and participating authors will be announced at the end of July. Latest figures from the UK Treasury show more than 628,000 jobs in Scotland have been furloughed so far. A further 146,000 self-employed Scots have accessed income support. Centrica, which owns British Gas and Scottish Gas, has said it will cut 5,000 jobs as the company tries to set a new course amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Centrica said it would strip out three layers of management to slimline the business and cut down on bureaucracy. Around half of the 5,000 lost jobs will be among the company's leadership, management and corporate staff. It includes half of the 40-strong senior leadership team who will step down at the end of August. Nicola Sturgeon has said she's optimistic that Scotland will be able to enter phase two of the route map out of lockdown next week. The First Minister said that, at least in part, more of the coronavirus lockdown measures will be eased at the next formal review on June the 18th. All of these may not take place, but here are some of the measures set out in the route map out of lockdown for phase two. From June the 18th, people in Scotland may be able to meet people from other households indoors for the first time. From phase two, the Scottish Government says pubs and restaurants can open outdoor spaces such as beer gardens, so long as social distancing measures can be maintained. The resumption of professional sports in line with public health advice is currently planned for phase two. Likewise, sports courts and playgrounds may also be able to open from the state. It's hoped that under Phase 2, marriages and civil partnerships can take place in Scotland with minimal number of attendees. People may be able to drive locally for leisure under the Phase 2 route map. Public transport can increase their capacity but will remain significantly limited to allow for physical distancing. Working from home, though, will remain the default position. But the guidance says non-essential indoor, non-office-based workplaces can reopen, including factories, warehouses, lab and research facilities. About a third of care home staff in Scotland have been tested for coronavirus, new figures show. On May 18th, Health Secretary Jean Freeman announced plans to test all staff in the sector in a bid to tackle the number of deaths in homes from the virus. Health boards were expected to carry out the tests, but the first tranche of statistics published by the Scottish Government shows 18,110 were carried out in Scotland by June the 7th. During First Minister's questions, Nicola Sturgeon said the data is very initial and will become more detailed in the coming weeks. A former scientific advisor to the Cabinet has claimed that the UK's grim death toll could have been cut by at least half if the country had gone into lockdown a week earlier. Professor Neil Ferguson of London's Imperial College, who was a key part of the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, that's SAGE, until he was forced to resign after being caught flouting lockdown rules, said this could have saved the lives of around 25,000 people. Boris Johnson said the academic's remark was premature. As of yesterday, a total of 2,434 patients have died in Scotland after testing positive for coronavirus, up from 12 from 2,422 on Tuesday. 
The figures are lower than the 4,000 deaths given earlier by the National Records of Scotland, as they do not include suspected and probable coronavirus infections. Scotland's devastated tourism industry is gearing up to resurrect part of its vital summer season, after ministers indicated it's set to reopen for business next month. Assuming Scotland's strategy to suppress the COVID-19 pandemic continues on track, hotels, B&Bs as well as pubs, restaurants and museums could all reopen on July the 15th. But social distancing measures will need to remain in place. Coronavirus Latest by Jack Aitchison This is Sport from The National on Thursday the 11th of June 2020. Justin Rose flies out the blocks to sit at Charles Schwab Challenge Summit by Press Association. Justin Rose hit the ground running as golf returned from a three-month hiatus with the Charles Schwab Challenge on Thursday. Rose held the clubhouse lead in Fort Worth, Texas after the early starters finished their rounds, having shot a blemish-free round of 63 in the first major tournament since the coronavirus pandemic shut down the sport. The world number 14, starting on the back nine, birdied four of his first seven holes and then picked up shots on each of the first three holes after making the turn. That gave him a one-shot lead over Venezuelan Jonathan Vegas and Mexico's Abraham Anza. Dustin Johnson did not enjoy his own return to action quite so much as the world number 5 stumbled to a 1 over 71, carding four bogeys in a rusty round. Ian Poulter was in a group tied for 10th place after a round of 66, while Phil Mickelson, fresh from his challenge matches with Tiger Woods during the shutdown, could only manage a 1 under 69 to sit in a share of 38th place. The event is the first on the PGA Tour since the Arnold Palmer Invitational in Orlando, Florida in early March and has drawn a star-studded field to Texas. 16 of the world top 20 will be in action over the weekend, with top-ranked Rory McIlroy among the late starters. Rose said a bit of luck on the opening hole had set him on his way as he overcame some wayward shots to birdie his first hole. I got some momentum, he said, on Sky Sports Golf. I didn't play particularly well on the first six or seven holes, but the putter was really hot. I got into a nice rhythm and I could have maybe got in the clubhouse better, but I rode my luck a little bit. Rose felt the performance was reward for the work he managed to do during the hiatus. I've worked hard for sure, he said. I haven't just sat around, I had the opportunity to get better. My season wasn't going particularly well up until the Players' Championship, so you try to look at the positives. Obviously, it's been a tough situation for everybody across the world. There are some dire circumstances, but you've got to look at yourself, your personal situation and think, how can I make the most of this? And that article was by Press Association 2020. Recorded from The National, 11th of June 2020. Bannockburn to close until 2022 as National Trust for Scotland swings axe. Christine Patterson. 
Visitors will be locked out of Bannockburn's award-winning attraction until 2022 under National Trust for Scotland's closure plans, the National can reveal. Seven sites will be mothballed for another around a year and a half as part of a coronavirus recovery blueprint drawn up by the Heritage and Culture Charity. Many other sites won't reopen until the second quarter of 2021 as NTS plans to make 417 people, 57% of its staff, redundant. The details has emerged around one month after bosses promised a radical action to cope with a projected £28 million shortfall caused by coronavirus closures. Staff said they were shocked to learn of the extent of the cuts. Of the potential redundancies, 158 are in the south and west region, which will be the hardest hit, with 86 others in the northeast and 77 in Edinburgh in the east, where Bannockburn is situated. NTS says it wants to reopen the battlefield and monuments as soon as we are able, but the visitor centre, backed by £5 million in public funds, will have to stay shut. One NTS worker, who asked not to be named during the ongoing redundancy consultation period, told The National, Bannockburn is one of our most popular sites for schools. The complete closure until 2022 will be awful, particularly in terms of the symbolism of the site within our national psyche. It's a dangerous site to close in terms of public perception and national feeling towards the Trust. The NTS has come under heavy fire in recent years after appointing outspoken unionist Neil Oliver to be its president. It has faced stiff cuts during the pandemic, with Tourism Secretary Fergus Ewing warning the Trust to be responsible. The NTS Centre at Bannockburn, which includes an interactive battle experience, is multi-award winning and attracted 65,000 people in the first year after the completion of its big money revamp in 2014. But NTS predicts an operating deficit of £38,879 this year. Seven other sites face enclosure until 2022, including Suter Johnny's Cottage in Kirkuswald, House of the Bins near Linlithgow and Alexander Greek Thompson Treasure Homewood House in Glasgow, which is currently the subject of an extensive rent restoration, also face deficits ranging from around £4,000 to £15,000. However, other properties expected to open earlier are also expected to land in the red. The 24-page document was emailed to NTS staff on Friday afternoon, around the same time members to the organisation were sent a pack of printed colouring pages and information on the Homewood House project. Almost half of the jobs at risk, 56.6%, are visitor service assistants. Another 7% are rangers, while 3.8% are in gardening. In the document, NTS state that even if August reopenings are possible, it will be too expensive to return to business as normal due to predicted lower visitor numbers. The source told The National, If you're getting rid of the staff members who are engaging with families, then how do you ever expect new members to come forward in the future? Our property is deemed unsuitable to be opened, but the people on the ground who have been doing the work haven't been asked how it could work with social distancing. NTS said, a number of factors will be used to make final decisions, including the need for the Trust to operate within its significantly reduced financial means, taking account of enabling safe visiting within varied property types while also ensuring essential care and maintenance can continue. In relation to the Bannockburn Visitor Centre at this stage, we anticipate reopening the wider battlefield and monuments as soon as we are able. The National, Thursday the 11th of June 2020. Neil Oliver claims removing racist statues is road to the guillotine. 
by the Joker. National Trust for Scotland President Neil Oliver has sparked yet another row after claiming the removal of slave trader Edward Colston's statue was the first step to the reintroduction of the guillotine. Speaking to Talk Radio's Mike Graham, the Coast presenter spoke extensively about his opposition to the removal of historic monuments, warning it's a very dangerous precedent to set. The passionate unionist added his voice to those on the right, warning it's important to keep history exactly the way it is, not that they have been vocal about raising awareness of Britain's links to slavery before, and tend to scoff when the UK is accused of institutional racism. Oliver told Graham, I certainly don't think that selectively editing the past is leading to any kind of productive and happy future. I take a position where we need more history, more clues to history, more pages from the story if possible. I say that you add to history and you don't subtract from it when you run across characters whose morals you don't approve of and you take them out of the context in which they lived. That's the early steps. I find it very concerning that this kind of behaviour is a step on the road that leads to mob rule, to the guillotine. Who are these self-appointed people who believe that they're able to make these value judgments? And I think that's a very dangerous precedent. Who among us had the kind of moral purity, moral certainty to be able to make those judgments? That's why we have a process. That's why if people find that there should be changes to their built landscape, there's a process for making that happen, which is legal. And if you cannot have a system which guarantees the process for the worst of us, then it certainly won't protect the best of us. We need to understand more, not selectively edit. So I find it very troubling, very worrisome. Interesting that he didn't mention the years of democratic work people in Bristol put into trying to get the Colson statue removed. The TV presenter then went on to complain that people had filmed the removal of Colson's statue on mobile phones, which may have been made by modern-day slaves, while wearing clothes which have been built in a sweatshop, calling it ironic, as if people are only capable of caring about one issue at a time. Oliver was trending on Twitter this afternoon when his comments sparked backlash from listeners. Commenting on his appearance on the programme, archaeologist Sarah May tweeted, Can we please remember that Neil Oliver is a TV presenter? He doesn't speak for heritage, archaeology or history. Meanwhile, Alan Ferrier felt there was an interesting contradiction with Oliver's own views on independence. He posted, Hirschut archaeologist Neil Oliver on top radio there. If you think you as an individual have the right to stand in judgment, then you're a very dangerous person. From the man who called Indie Ref a hate fest and the prospect of a second a cancerous presence. Hmm. Another user accused Oliver of denying Scotland's history matters when it suits him. By the Joker. This is Sport from The National on Thursday the 11th of June 2020. Carson Warholm smashes 300-metre hurdles world record at Impossible Games in Oslo by Press Association. Chris Rawlinson saw his 18-year-old 300-metre hurdles world record smashed by Norway's Carsten Warholm at the behind-closed-doors Impossible Games in Oslo. 
Warholm, the two-time 400 hurdles world champion, proved equally adept over the rarely contested shorter distance, storming home in his solo attempt in a time of 33.78. Warholm's time eclipsed by almost three quarters of a second the time of 34.48 seconds set by Rawlinson in Sheffield in 2002. The Games, set up as a Diamond League exhibition to replace the Bislett Games due to coronavirus restrictions, also included a pole vault competition in which world record holder Armand Duplantis, who was in the stadium, cleared 5.86 metres to beat Renault Lavinelli, who was competing via video link from his garden in France. In another event, a Norwegian team, including the Inga Brigsten brothers, won a 2,000-metre race against a Kenyan team, including Timothy Cheruyot, who were racing simultaneously in the reign of Nairobi. And that article was by a Press Association 2020. You're listening to The National as published on Friday the 12th of June 2020. Comment. Joe Biden has got to be better than Donald Trump on foreign policy by David Pratt, Foreign Affairs Editor. I don't want to tempt fate and only the foolhardy make political predictions, but let's say that US voters throw out Donald Trump in November's presidential election. Short of a vaccine for COVID-19 becoming available, Trump's removal from office might be the only piece of good news many Americans can look forward to beyond the summer. That said, there is every reason for caution over assuming Trump will find himself vacating the big house on Pennsylvania Avenue. We've been here before, after all, back in 2016. Lots of pundits called it wrong then, including a number of world leaders who blithely dismissed Trump's chances of inhabiting the White House in the first place. That said, if the latest polls are anything to go by, then those within the Trump election camp are sure to be having a few sleepless nights right now. Just yesterday, the pollster Gallup showed that Trump's approval rating slid to 39% in a poll taken between May the 28th and June the 4th. Other polls draw similar conclusions. In short, it means that if the election were held today, Trump would likely lose. Which brings us to the question of Joe Biden, the man most likely to succeed Trump as president. Regular readers of this column will likely know that I'm not a big fan of the man who was former vice president under the Obama administration. It's not that Biden's a bad guy as such. On the contrary, if you want a US president who has always positioned himself at the centre of the Democratic Party, then Biden's your man. To be fair too, as the Democratic Party has moved left, so Biden, in order to unite the party around him, has made some positive progressive commitments. His proposed reforms of US labour policy are a point in case. From his call for a $15 federal minimum wage, regarded as radical when Bernie Sanders pushed it for four four years ago, to giving teeth to legislation preventing companies from firing employees for forming a union, Biden has some admirable policies in the offing. In other words, it's not Biden's domestic agenda so much that gives me cause for niggling concern as what he might do on the international front. The bottom line here is that Biden's track record on foreign policy issues is erratic to say the least. This, after all, is a politician who voted against the 1991 Gulf War but in favour of the 2003 Iraq War. It's a man who once said the Taliban per se is not our enemy and opposed the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. 
My point is not whether these are right or wrong decisions, but that so often Biden lacks consistency. No one would deny that an ability to change one's mind is vital for any political leader wrestling with the ever-fluid nature of global diplomacy and foreign policy needs. But on more than a few occasions, Biden has shown himself to be out of step and his instincts flawed, especially on defence matters and when, where and if US intervention should take place. It's perhaps telling that while Biden served more than three decades in the Senate, including a stint as chairman of the Senate's Foreign Relations Committee, he was seldom seen as a cohesive and canny force on US foreign and defence policy. When compared, of course, to the loose cannon that is Trump over foreign policy matters, such concerns over what shape Biden's approach could take might seem churlish or overwrought. Looking at the post-pandemic world, however, and the strained relations between so many countries, alongside the pressing need for greater international collaboration, such concerns should not be easily dismissed. That much was made clear in an interview with CNN last week given by Colin Powell, a former National Security Advisor and Secretary of State in the George W. Bush administration. We have done things that have offended just about everybody in the world. Our friends are distraught with us, said Powell. Just about everywhere you go, you will find this kind of disdain for American foreign policy. That is not in our interests, and we have to get on top of this. We have to start acting seriously, he warned. He's right. Should Trump lose the presidency, he will leave in his wake utter carnage from disputes with NATO, betraying allies like the Kurds, to withdrawing from climate agreements and the World Health Organization. If Biden's foreign policy instincts have given cause for some concern in the past, then the good news is that he remains a US leader who as president would most likely return to working with allies and through multilateral institutions and honouring international agreements. For some critics, such a policy of restoration, as it's been called, might not seem like much or fail to take advantage of opportunities to improve or move forward. But again, compared to Trump, there would be a colossal step in the right direction and help begin recalibrating America's role as a vital international player. It goes without saying, of course, that a Biden victory would not of itself offer guarantees of change in the world. Dire US relations with China and Iran, the mess that is the wider Middle East and an uncompromising Russia will not simply disappear just because Joe Biden is in the White House. It is admittedly though difficult to imagine him doing a more botched job than Trump. To that end, Biden in the White House would be a welcome outcome even if question marks still hang over his foreign, foreign policy now. Seen from a European perspective, his presidency would certainly be an opportunity to regalvanize the democratic values and level of international collaboration of which the US was and is a crucial part. Writing earlier this week, the American journalist Barbara Crossett, UN correspondent for The Nation magazine, observed that the toughest task for Biden, should he become president, would be linking foreign policy to a changed America. I'll go one step further than that and say that his toughest challenge would be linking it to a changed world. Then again, he still has to win that election in November at home first. You've been listening to David Pratt. Biden's been flaky on foreign policy, but must be better than Trump. The National, Friday the 12th of June 2020. This is why J.K. Rowling's non-fiction foray caused a Twitter storm by Shona Craven.
Stay alert. It's not enough to protect yourself from the virus. Dangerous thoughts are contagious too, and shielding yourself from them can be tricky. While you're staying at home and saving lives, you might also want to guard against exposure to blog posts by J.K. Rowling. Potter maniacs around the world are weeping and wailing, effing and blinding. C-list celebrities are seizing the opportunity to grab headlines. Happy childhoods have been retrospectively ruined. What, you might ask, could the Harry Potter author possibly have written to prompt this outpouring? Has she announced another mammoth donation to Better Together, just as we are desperately trying to distance ourselves from the shambolic state of affairs down south? Is she furloughing some staff rather than paying them golden galleons from her own vault? Has she cast a spell on someone? No. The indiscretion for which she must be punished is saying that sex is real. That sex as in male and female, not in the activity. What kind of body a person has, not what they might plan to do with it in a social bubble, an England-only social bubble, it should be stressed. Sex as in the real, observable and immutable difference between men and women. Fortunately, for her own sanity, the woman who made up Muggles and Quidditch and Death Eaters knows the difference between things that are real and things that are the product of human imaginations. She knows that sex is determined by chromosomes, whereas gender is a made-up set of rules about how men and women ought to be. Unfortunately, she also knows what it's like to experience both domestic abuse and sexual assault, which is one of several reasons why discussions about sex and gender are personally important to her. She, like so many women, has a very specific dog in the fight about who should be included in the definition of woman and how laws and policies should protect women's rights. Other reasons include sex differences in health care, for example in the effects of multiple sclerosis from which Rowling's mother suffered and into which she funds research and her struggles with obsessive-compulsive disorder as a teenager, of which she's reminded when she reads about girls attempting to escape womanhood by deciding to live as young men. But I've already revealed too much, and you might not even be wearing a mask as you read this. To be on the safe side, you should apply a blindfold now. Some people really don't want you to know what J.K. Rowling's blog post says. They're worried it might give you the wrong ideas, and worse still, that you might irresponsibly spread them around. They want you to believe that even reading what she's written, as a woman, as a survivor, as a mother of daughters, will make you complicit in causing harm to people who believe in gender and insist that you believe in it too. They want you to think that by writing about her own fear of men, she's scaremongering about the marginalised minority of people who identify as transgender. They want you to believe someone with money, acclaim and global fame could not possibly still bear the scars from a time when she'd no money, no book deal and nowhere safe to live. The blog post has not come out of the blue. Thanks to a copy and paste blunder last weekend, the author last accidentally outed herself as the wrong kind of woman, one concerned about the potential impact of words like woman losing any objective meaning. Regrettably, the blunder occurred when she was in the process of giving feedback on children's artwork, and it involved tweeting not only a description of violence against a woman, but the F-word to boot. The sweary word, I mean, although these days feminism is considered almost as obscene. 
This was not the first time Rowling had been suspected of dabbling in the dark arts of what is tautologically known as gender-critical feminism. If your feminism isn't critical of gender, you need to go back to square one. A representative previously declared she was being clumsy and middle-aged when she liked a tweet posted by a woman declaring that men in dresses were better supported by Labour Party comrades than she had ever been, and attributing this to misogyny. Rowling now says her mistake was publicly clicking like on that tweet instead of privately taking a screenshot. It's a shame she opted to present herself as doddery and confused at the age of 54, as misogynists seldom need an excuse to declare any woman over 30 as hysterical and out of touch. With Wednesday's post, she's made it crystal clear where she stands. Yesterday's headlines focused on the disclosures she's made about her personal experiences, not a challenge to the Scottish Government to reconsider its plans to reform the law around gender recognition. Those who stick to secondary sources will have read about the darkest parts of the author's life, but will likely have little grasp of why she's decided to write about them now. Those in the outraged online echo chambers might try their best to drown out voices who want to talk about sex. But telling people not to read the world's most famous author feels like a losing strategy. This discussion cannot be ignored. We cannot vaccinate women and girls against male violence. So we have a duty to listen to survivors. By Shona Craven. Recorded from The National, 12th of June 2020. Coming to a snack aisle near you. Lorne Sausage and Bren Sauce Crisps. Kirstine Patterson. It's possibly Scotland's best loved scran and now it's available in crisp form. Mackey's crisps are set to score what's likely a world first when their Lorne sausage and brown sauce flavour snack hits snack aisles. But shoppers need to be quick to grab their bag, as only 150,000 packets will be made. The company's James Taylor said, It really does taste just like the real thing, regardless whether you call it Lorne or Square. The limited edition product follows on from the haggis neeps and tatties offering created by the Perthshire firm last December. It became a sellout and the family business hopes this will too when it's delivered to grocers through the coming weeks. However, they say they expect fans to be divided over whether it should have been called square sausage rather than Lauren sausage. Taylor said, We trialled quite a few different concepts, but the Lauren sausage and Bren sauce combination became an instant hit with all of our team. The addition of Bren sauce gives it a real savoury and complex flavour profile, and one we hope crisp and sausage fans will love in equal measure. We're quickly becoming synonymous with for our patriotic limited flavours. As Scots, we're too quick to put down our traditional foods, but in reality we have amazing produce and dishes we should be fiercely proud of. It is believed that the Lorne or Square Sausage was developed in the 19th century as improvements to metal making allowed for foods to be easily shaped or baked. Whilst the origin of the Lorne name is disputed, evidence suggests it is not named after Glasgow comedian Tommy Lorne, who made disparaging remarks about the quality of sausages in the city, but it may have come from the ancient district of Lorne, which is now part of Argyllan Butte, or perhaps the Marquess of Lorne, who married Queen Victoria's daughter, Princess Louise, in the 19th century. Taylor said, 
It will hit the shops throughout Scotland in the coming weeks and will only be available until the first and only batch of 150,000 bags sells out. We certainly hope that this new flavour proves as tempting as haggis, neeps and tatties did. We have enjoyed working on the development of this new flavour and limited editions will likely continue to play an integral role for our crisps business over the coming years. Those that prove popular amongst our customers could end up being added to our permanent range. You're listening to The National as published on Friday the 12th of June 2020. Comment. This is why J.K. Rowling's non-fiction foray caused a Twitter storm by Shona Craven, columnist and community editor. Stay alert. It's not enough to protect yourself from the virus. Dangerous thoughts are contagious too and shielding yourself from them can be tricky. While you're staying at home and saving lives, you might also want to guard against exposure to blog posts by J.K. Rowling. Potter maniacs around the world are weeping and wailing, effing and blinding. C-list celebrities are seizing the opportunity to grab headlines. Happy childhoods have been retrospectively ruined. What, you might ask, could the Harry Potter author possibly have written to prompt this outpouring? Has she announced another mammoth donation to Better Together, just as we're desperately trying to distance ourselves from the shambolic state of affairs down south? Is she furloughing some staff rather than paying them golden galleons from her own vault? Has she cast a spell on someone? No, the indiscretion for which she must be punished is saying that sex is real. That sex as in male and female, not as in the activity. What kind of body a person has, not what they might plan to do with it in a social bubble, an England-only social bubble it should be stressed. Sex as in the real, observable and immutable difference between men and women. Fortunately for her own sanity, the woman who made up muggles and Quidditch and Death Eaters knows the difference between things that are real and things that are the product of human imaginations. She knows that sex is determined by chromosomes, whereas gender is a made-up set of rules about how men and women ought to be. Unfortunately, she also knows what it's like to experience both domestic abuse and sexual assault, which is one of several reasons why discussions about sex and gender are personally important to her. She, like so many women, has a very specific dog in the fight about who should be included in the definition of women and how laws and policies should protect women's rights. Other reasons include sex differences in healthcare, for example in the effects of multiple sclerosis from which Rowling's mother suffered and into which she funds research, and her struggles with obsessive compulsive disorder as a teenager, of which she is reminded when she reads about girls attempting to escape womanhood by deciding to live as young men. But I've already revealed too much, and you might not even be wearing a mask as you read this. To be on the safe side, you should apply a blindfold now. Some people really don't want you to know what J.K. Rowling's blog post says. They're worried it might give you the wrong ideas, and worse still, that you might irresponsibly spread them around. They want you to believe that even reading what she has written, as a woman, as a survivor, as a mother of daughters, will make you complicit in causing harm to people who believe in gender and insist that you believe in it too. They want you to think that by writing about her own fear of men, she is scaremongering about the marginalised minority of people who identify as transgender. 
they want you to believe someone with money, acclaim and global fame could not possibly still bear the scars from a time when she had no money, no book deal and nowhere safe to live. The blog post has not come out of the blue. Thanks to a copy and paste blunder last weekend, the author last accidentally outed herself as the wrong kind of woman, one concerned about the potential impact of words like woman losing any objective meaning. Regrettably, the blunder occurred when she was in the process of giving feedback on children's artwork and it involved tweeting not only a description of violence against a woman but the F-word to boot. The sweary one, I mean, although these days feminism is considered almost as obscene. This was not the first time Rowling had been suspected of dabbling in the dark arts of what is tautologically known as gender-critical feminism. If your feminism isn't critical of gender, you need to go back to square one. A representative previously declared she was being clumsy and middle-aged when she liked a tweet posted by a woman declaring that men in dresses were better supported by Labour Party comrades than she had ever been and attributing this to misogyny. Rowling now says her mistake was publicly clicking like on that tweet instead of privately taking a screenshot. It's a shame she opted to present herself as doddery and confused at the age of 54, as misogynists seldom need an excuse to declare any woman over 30 as hysterical and out of touch. With Wednesday's post, she has made it crystal clear where she stands. Yesterday's headlines focused on the disclosure she has made about her personal experiences, not her challenge to the Scottish Government to reconsider its plans to reform the law around gender recognition. Those who stick to secondary sources will have read about the darkest parts of the author's life, but will likely have little grasp of why she has decided to write about them now. Those in the outraged online echo chambers might try their best to drown out voices who want to talk about sex, but telling people not to read the world's most famous author feels like a losing strategy. This discussion cannot be ignored. We cannot vaccinate women and girls against male violence, so we have a duty to listen to survivors. You've been listening to This Is Why Some Don't Want You To Read J.K. Rowling's Latest Writing. The National, Friday the 12th of June 2020. Coronavirus Update by Jack Aitchison. The brutal impact of the coronavirus lockdown on the UK economy has been revealed. Figures released by the Office for National Statistics showed economic activity down by 20.4% in April, the largest drop in a single month since records began in 1997, and worse than many experts were forecasting. It comes as shops and factories closed and workers were sent home amid social distancing fears. The fall massively outstrips the then-record 5.8% drop in March gross domestic product that the ONS reported last month. It means that GDP fell by 10.4% in the three months to April and sets the UK on course for one of its worst quarters in history. Experts had been expecting April's GDP to contract by 18.7%, according to a consensus compiled by Pantheon Macroeconomics. The latest coronavirus figures as of yesterday, 2,439 deaths, that's an increase of five, 15,682 confirmed cases, an increase of 17. 909 in hospital, a decrease of 78. 
and 21 patients in intensive care, plus three. Children face lifelong consequences as a direct result of lockdown, Scotland's children's commissioners warned. Bruce Adamson said kids had lost a significant chunk of childhood through school closures, urging politicians to prioritise their futures. Speaking to the Scottish Sun, he warned pupils will be suffering by seeing parents stressed out from the effects of the pandemic. Children haven't been in school in Scotland since March 20th, and they're not set to return until August 11th at the earliest. Mr Adamson told The National, The UN Committee on the Rights of the Child warned that the grave physical, emotional and psychological impacts on children would have lifelong consequences. That's why we have to work right now on ensuring all children get the support they need, and we need to be particularly mindful of the mental health impacts. The priority of the government needs to be on children and their rights. By Jack Aitchison Recorded from The National, 12th of June 2020. Robert Milligan, the Scottish slave trader whose statue was taken down in London. Laura Webster. The statue of Robert Milligan was removed from outside the Museum of London Docklands last night after Mayor Sadiq Khan announced a review of city landmarks with links to slavery. The monument was lifted from its plinth by a crane last night to cheers and clapping from onlookers. It came after anti-racism protesters in Bristol tore down a statue of slave trader Edward Goldstone at the weekend, sparking a debate about the UK's links to slavery and ways which they remembered and understood. Milligan's monument was removed in London to recognise the wishes of the community. The Dumfries-born slave trader owned two sugar plantations and 526 slaves in Jamaica. The monument stood at the spot since 1809. A spokesperson for the museum said, The Museum of London recognises that the monument is part of the ongoing problematic regime of whitewashing history, which disregards the pain of those who are still wrestling with the remnants of the crimes Milligan commuted against humanity. Milligan was born in Dumfries in 1746, but moved to Kingston, Jamaica, where he managed his family's plantations. His statue stood at museum because of his links to the West India docks, which he was instrumental in the construction of, and had a monopoly on the import of products like sugar, rum and coffee into London for 21 years. From the dock ships would go to West Africa, where enslaved people were purchased, then go to the Caribbean to buy the products from plantations where enslaved men, women and children were forced to work. The sugar, rum and coffee would then be brought back to the docks and stored there. Milligan was a vocal opponent of the abolition of slavery. He died in 1809. And that was this week's National. Thank you for listening.